Good evening. We are back tonight to resume our studies in the New Testament book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. We started this on Sunday with introductory information. We'll give some more introductory information tonight, but we will get into chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and talk a little bit more about that in depth. Colossians chapter 1. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we express to Thee our thanksgiving for what we have especially for thy written word to guide us in what is good and right. For Jesus, who went to the cross for us, and for all the blessings we are able to have in him. To thy name be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 1. I want to read down through verse 14. Not that all those verses will be covered tonight. I have a focus on the two opening verses, but for the sake of context, listen please, this is Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which is come to you, as indeed in the whole world, in its bearing fruit and growing, as it always does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us <clears throat> your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think in our introductory class on Sunday, I said to us that the opening verses in Colossians chapter 1 
are written in the format typical of an opening letter in that time. The writer is identified. If necessary, the writer's credentials are stated. If the writer has associates with him at the time, it's typical and customary for those associates to be named, and then the recipients are addressed, and then there is a pleasant greeting. And so this follows the typical pattern of an epistle back in that time. So let's start now with Paul, the writer. For many of you, this will be a review. You are readers and students of the New Testament, so you're already acquainted with Paul. But let's review. He had been a Pharisee, rebellious against Jesus Christ, associated with those who stoned Stephen. But once on a trip to persecute Christians, Christ appeared to him and he became an obedient believer. He was baptized by a man named Ananias. And then Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, as he was called back then, was not immediately out in the public preaching venue. And you can read about all this in Acts chapter 9. Now, in the reports that we have of his conversion, it is very clear that he was called to be an additional apostle of Christ. And we are told elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12, that he performed the signs to verify that he was an apostle of Christ. And here in Colossians 1 verse 1, he states that Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then to that he added this important phrase, by the will of God. We'll pause here and make the observation that Paul did not make himself an apostle. The other apostles did not elect him. There was no voting in a local church setting. He was chosen and he carried out that commission by the will of God. And that is also the testimony of Luke in Acts chapter 9. At the time Paul wrote Colossians, he was with Timothy. Timothy was a younger man. He worked as an evangelist for some time in Ephesus and also with the church at Philippi. Paul and Timothy were together as Paul wrote this letter. When you introduce an epistle in the New Testament, the subject of dating sometimes comes up. Chronolo chronology comes up. Dating attempts generally place the letter of Colossians in the early 60s of the first century, with Paul in prison, but in a circumstance in prison where he was able to have men like Timothy and Luke with him, sometimes described as house arrest. So, that's how Colossians begin. Paul is an apostle, I'm going to ask you now, by whose will? By God's will, that's right. And he's accompanied by what young evangelist? 
Timothy. Okay, so Paul is with Timothy, and Paul addresses the church in Colossae, giving his credentials. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, back to that format. You have the writer and who he is with, and his credentials are stated. And then it was customary to name those you were writing to, and then after that, provide some pleasant greeting. So that's what's next in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's going to be valuable for us, I think, to spend some time here talking about the terminology used to describe these Christians. First of all, we're going to take a look at that term, saints. And we're going to look at that a few minutes because there is widespread misapplication of this term in the religious world. Our concern, of course, is how the New Testament uses this terminology, saints. This is interesting, and it's helpful to me. There is a whole family of words in the New Testament that share similarity and convey a similar concept, but in different contexts. The Greek word would be hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S. And the meaning of that simple word is separate, or it may be defined with the word different. Or in the older lexicons, Thayer and uh, the old lexicons, Vines, it may be described in terms of being set apart. So you have a basic root word, hagaios, that means set apart or separate, and then derived from that word, there's a whole family of words that you encounter in the New Testament. Sanctified comes from that root. Sanctification the word holy, and also the word saints. And so when I see people in the New Testament referred to as saints, I need to understand from all of the context that they are not a special elevated class celebrated above other Christians. They are people who are set apart from the world from the time they responded to the gospel and as they continue to live under Christ's authority. Very important to point that out. If you're in conversation with someone and they talk about someone who's been enshrined as a saint, these in Colossae and Ephesus and Jerusalem and Rome, these are persons upon whom the Lord has bestowed great favor or grace, but they received that favor when they responded to the gospel of Christ. And they continue to live in the favor of God as they are set apart, different from the world. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. We are the saints who are gathered here at this place tonight. So, sanctified set apart by the blood of Christ upon your response to the gospel. 
That's the basic idea. Not an elevated class as in the context of Catholicism. That's not a New Testament use of the word. One more little tidbit about this. In religious vocabulary over the centuries, a place religious people have set aside to worship is sometimes called what? A sanctuary. And that's from that same family of words. A place that's been set apart. Well, these people in Colossae were set apart when they obeyed the gospel and they continued to be holy or sanctified or saints as they continued to follow the will of God. Now, the next part of this further describes the people Paul was writing to in terms of their integrity and their continued allegiance to Jesus Christ. Faithful brethren. Now this tells us two things right up front. One, that Paul knew something about how these people lived. <clears throat> and there's something that I read that indicates that. Paul had learned from Epaphras about how these people were conducting themselves. So Paul knew something about how these people lived. They were good people who shared loyalty to Jesus Christ. Once set apart by their response to the gospel of Christ, they had maintained loyalty to him. Now, the second thing flows from that. And this is very important as we continue all through the Colossian epistle. We cannot conclude that all the Christians in Colossae were caught up in the false doctrine that was circulating there. Remember we talked about that Sunday. I mentioned on Sunday how false teaching was spreading in that vicinity, the Lycus River Valley where Colossae was. And it was error, it was false doctrine that diminished and took away from the truth about who Jesus is and what he did. So Paul saw that as a threat and he responds to that false teaching. But we should not think that all the Christians were under that deception. Paul is writing to saints who were faithful brethren and he does not ever accuse them all of being guilty of being deceived. He's writing to warn them. He wants them to be able to respond to the error that was being circulated in that area about Jesus Christ. And at the same time, he's urging them to continue to be set apart people, to continue to be sanctified by their allegiance to God and his will, remaining faithful to the Lord. So, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is with Timothy at the time. Timothy, he said, our brother. He's writing to people who are saints, not in some sense that they were elevated above other Christians, but that they were Christians. And he says they were faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, the next element in the common format of a letter would be to express some pleasant greeting. And that's next. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is one of those phrases that we read so many times in the New Testament, in epistle after epistle, that our temptation is to skip over it and say, well, I've read that before and that's very common. And sometimes when something is common in the New Testament and our reading of the Bible, we skip over it. Let's take a few minutes. These are people who have received God's initial imparting of grace. And we just talked about that when they obeyed the gospel. They were set apart. When they obeyed the gospel, they became recipients of God's initial imparting of grace to forgive them based on the blood of Christ. Forgiven of their sin. So grace was offered... And by the activity of their faith, grace was accepted in their obedience to the gospel. But I want us to think now in a broader sense. Grace is not something that you just receive when you're baptized and you're done with it. You continue to walk in grace and stand in grace. And you continue to be recipients of God's favor. We stand in need of God's continuing favor after baptism. His unmerited favor is something we depend on day and day. We ask God to bless us and help us and provide for us when we pray. And we ask God to forgive us when we sin. And that's appealing to Him for His favor. Paul is reflecting all of that in the broader sense when he says grace to you. And later in chapter 1, Paul is going to express how he is praying for these people. And so we'll see that when we come to it later in chapter 1. And then the other expression is peace from God our Father. Once again, we are recipients of God's peace initially when we first obey the gospel. Then we need to be ruled by that peace. Paul is going to make a statement later over in Colossians chapter 3 at verse 16, or 15 I should say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So I should not think of grace and peace as something that I'm a recipient of initially when I'm baptized and then I'm done with it. No, I continue to need the favor of God and I continue to live in the peace that Christ imparts as I become engaged in life by the activity of faith. So, Paul wants there to be in the lives of his brothers and sisters in the Lord in Colossae, grace and peace. And I'm going to ask you, from what source? From what source? Grace to you and peace. And then what does it say? From God our Father. So that identifies the source that they would depend upon for continuing grace and peace. So those are the two opening verses in Colossians chapter 1. Do you have additional comments about what we've studied? Yes, ma'am. That's right. That's right. Very good point. 
not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of God. And the presence of God is really tied into both of those terms, grace and peace. Paul is wanting them to have that and continue to live that way so that they are recipients of grace and peace. Let's do this, see if it helps a little bit to frame this in our minds. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 from three different translations. They will differ very little. In the ESV that I read from, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Some of you have the King James, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The New American Standard, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, there's another little part of this that I want to talk to you about. And it's another temptation to sort of pass by it because you see it so many times. But there's one more little part of this that is one of the most significant prepositional phrases in the New Testament. One of the most significant prepositional phrases in the New Testament. What do you think that is? In Christ. See, it is so simple and it's repeated so many times in New Testament writings. The temptation is, I've seen that before. But we need to pause and talk about it. In Colossians and Ephesians, this expression is used repeatedly. But in the New Testament, the total is almost 100 times. In Christ. So we need to talk about the significance of it. It is important because it conveys to us relationship. Relationship. Before we obeyed the gospel, what were we living in? Sin. Upon obedience to the gospel, we are baptized into Christ. See, that's relationship. Or you could look at it in terms of spiritual location. Actually, there would then be two locations identified in the opening verses. There would be physical or geographic location. What would that be? At Colossae. That would be physical or geographic location. But spiritual location transcends the physical and the geographical. Spiritual location in Jesus Christ. And you may recall immediately when we bring up the phrase, you may recall Romans chapter 6 being baptized into Christ. Or you may recall Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 being baptized into Christ. 
And actually, in Colossians 2 and verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Never just ignore a phrase because it's repeated, because it's a common preposition. This is very important. I sometimes have used this illustration about that phrase. Think of benefits or blessings, and then think about where the benefits or blessings are located. And that may help. You can't just claim the benefits, for example, of a company. Uh, You can't walk into a corporate headquarters somewhere and say, I want to be included in your health plan. I want to receive the benefits of this company. I want to have the retirement plan that this company offers. No, you're going to be told you can't have those benefits that this company offers because you're not in this company. Paul in Colossians and Ephesians and also in Romans explains the benefits offered by God's grace in Christ because of what he did for us and who he is and because the only way we can be associated with God coming out of sin is in him, in Christ. See, that's just very important to understand that. This little preposition is loaded with meaning. The benefits God offers are in Jesus Christ. And as faith is activated in Jesus Christ, baptism becomes the entry point into this relationship. If you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, If you're talking to someone who thinks they are a Christian, but they've not followed the New Testament mandates and conditions, this is something you can really use as a rich, good basis to plug into that conversation. Are you in Christ? And many times the immediate response will be, well, yes, I'm in Christ. How did you enter into that relationship? And see, what you're doing is you're leading that conversation here. And you can go to Romans 6 and Galatians 3.27 and Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians 2.12. And you can bring all this up for the benefit of the person you're having the conversation with. So, 30 minutes and I've covered two verses, but look at everything that is there. The writer, who he's with, his credentials... He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He addresses the recipients as to their physical location in Colossae. He addresses them as to their spiritual location in Christ. He regards them to be saints and faithful, and he expresses this pleasant greeting, grace to you and peace, and it's from this source, God our Father. So much is loaded into those two verses. And if we have that all nailed down in our heads, it's going to be much easier to study the rest of the epistle. We'll go at a faster pace 
But these first two verses are critical in the very beginning of our study. Anything else? Questions or comments before I go to my takeaways? And I have some supplemental material that we may have time for. Takeaways. When we talk to people about what Paul wrote, in some cases, with some people we may be talking to, we might need to be prepared to affirm his credentials. Sometimes I think what we do is we assume that this simple knowledge base that we have acquired over many years, the very simple part of that knowledge base from reading the Bible, people we're talking to understand. They may not. They may not really understand what an apostle is and why there was an additional apostle. And when did God... You might have to go back to Acts 9 and bring all that up. And you remember when Bubba was here, he had a very good class for us that Sunday morning. And he was talking to us about the definition of an apostle. And do you remember how simple that was? And many of you answered when Bubba asked the question, what is an apostle? What's the definition of the word? One sent. One who is sent. Most of us are so familiar with what an apostle is, so familiar with that definition, that we may just assume that people know that. But when we talk to people who do not have a good Bible knowledge base, it might be good to explain Paul's apostleship. That he was not one of the original men chosen, but the New Testament in Acts chapter 9 clearly shows him to be chosen by the Lord and sent. And then you might even need to go to 2 Corinthians 12, 12 and show that he had the credentials of the ones who were sent. He bore the signs of an apostle. It might be good to go over that. Simple things that we take for granted, but in conversation with people, we might need to stop and explain that or discover if they know what we're talking about. Now, the next takeaway, let's, let's go more practical for us personally. Each time in reading the New Testament, we come to these descriptions of God's people. There should be pause that is accompanied by self-examination. There should be a pause that is accompanied by self-examination. So, when I come to the word saint or saints... And I discover from the whole context of the New Testament that that describes a Christian. Then I need to explore what that's about, being set apart from the world, being different. And, and that shouldn't be just an academic exercise where I say, well, I know what a saint is. I know the definition. I'm even familiar with that whole family of words. Where that needs to come down is, am I a saint? Because of the popular connotation of the word, you might step back from that. No, follow the New Testament definition. 
Am I a saint? That means, do I think and live as one set apart from the world to the Lord and His will? And if it sounds awkward to name myself as a saint, that may be a signal that some good self-examination in addition to that is needed as I apply what the New Testament says about God's people to myself. And it may even be with some people, some repentance or change or additional growth is called for. So I shouldn't just pass that by. Faithful. Am I faithful? Am I engaged toward the Lord with intentional, personal, active faithfulness? See, every time I come to one of these terms, I ought to pause and engage in some good self-inquiry, good self-examination. And then, in Christ. Now, I shouldn't just say, well, certainly I'm in Christ. I was baptized into Christ. Let me show you something in Colossians 2 that we will come to later in our study. Look at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So after you receive Him initially, when you're baptized into Christ, there is a certain way to live and think and speak and walk. And that mobility of faith is described very well in Colossians, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So, this is not just about, can I take people to passages that show what it means to be in Christ? At this point in our study, we're talking about, am I there? Am I living there? Do I see myself? as one walking in Him day by day. I certainly can take people to the passages that describe the in Christ relationship or spiritual location, but am I there? You see that? Very important. Four minutes. Anything else you see there you'd like to bring up? I had a map up the other day when we started and uh, didn't have time to go to this graphic. It is almost trivial compared to what we've just been talking about, but if, if it helps you geographically in your study of reading of the New Testament, uh, this diagram may help. Here's Rome, and these increments represent a hundred miles, and so here's how far that is from this little this little community, Colossae, Hierapolis, Ephesus, Laodicea, right in the Lycus River Valley is where that was located. Paul is, you remember what he was called before, Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus. So Paul is coming close to riding back home. That diagram may help you geographically as you consider the location of Colossae. Something else I wanted to bring up. This is in the category of supplemental information. 
Somebody made a list one time of the longest sentences in the New Testament in the King James. And Colossians 1, 3 through 8 made that list. I think it was called the top five longest sentences in the New Testament in the King James. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. One sentence. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. That's one reason some of us <clears throat> prefer later translations. When you came to the American Standard Version of 1901, you could see a shortening of sentences. Makes it easier to read, especially in public. And then the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. One of the reasons we may prefer the later translations is because of sentence structure and conciseness of the way the sentences are read. Trivia, really, but that uh, occurred to me. Then, uh, don't have time really to cover this next supplemental part that wasn't really that important but was interesting. I'll bring it up some other time. A comparison between the first part of Colossians and the first part of Philippians. The uh, heart of the Apostle Paul that comes out in those opening chapters of his epistles, very good to study that. We don't have time to navigate that this evening, but we will some other time. So come back on Sunday and we'll continue at verse 3 and go through perhaps verse 8, maybe all the way down to verse 14. We were slow tonight because we thought these concepts in verses 1 and 2 were very important as part of our introduction to the study of Colossae, uh, the epistle to Colossae. Thank you very much.